Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to church this morning. Please stand and join us as we lift our voices together and sing God's praises in his holy place.
Please be seated. One of the great privileges of being the church is that we are not just connected to what's going on here, but we're connected to things that are happening around the world. In a few moments as we pray together, we will remember some of the the world needs. But uh, we also have the privilege as a church to connect with people who are doing ministry in different places of the world. And uh, we have been supporting Steve and Margie Doty and their ministry with Wycliffe Bible Translators for many years. And uh, they are back for a few months and are here today and are going to share a few moments about what God is doing in their lives and in their ministry. So uh, we're Stephen Margie Doty with Wycliffe Bible Translators, and this church is very special to us because right here 30 years ago, Margie and I got married in this church, so it's a very special place for us. Uh, currently, we're serving in Thailand, uh, where we live and work, but our work also extends to the neighboring countries of Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Burma, also known as Myanmar. Our work is to translate the Bible into the many languages there. Currently, we have 51 translation projects going. We'd like to start 100 more, so we're actively trying to recruit more Bible translators to join us in in this task. Uh, Briefly, our work is to help people with their linguistics and literacy and language learning and, of course, translation work. And Margie will uh, fill in some details. Okay, I don't want anyone going away this morning thinking that the Dodies are personally translating into 51 different languages, Um, but we are focusing on uh, three areas, and that is training and uh, consultant checking scripture and doing administration. And so for those three areas, the training that we're involved in has two phases. The first part is a master's degree in linguistics program at Piop University where people can come and be trained in linguistics and translation and then go back to their home country of Myanmar or Vietnam or wherever they come from, also training some of our own people and other uh, Westerners too. Uh, The second part is checking scripture. Steve is a consultant, so he goes around and travels and looks at the uh, work that's being done to try to ensure that it's clear and accurate and natural. And he also is... um, raising up other people, training others to be consultants as well. And the third part of our job is administration. Uh, Steve is the director of academic affairs, which means that all of our consultant core um, falls under him, the translation consultants, linguistic consultants, anthropology, ethnomusicology, all the different areas that we uh, are concerned about. And for me, I am the director of the Linguistics Institute at PIAP, which does community-level training and research and also um, computer programming to assist in the work. Um, I'm also the director for the linguistics and translation work that's happening in Thailand. So those things have been keeping us busy these last few years. So we want to say a special thank you to everyone here. Houghton Church is very special to us, and we wouldn't be able to do this ministry of Bible translation without the uh, partnership of Houghton Church and others who uh, believe in Bible translation. So we want to say thank you very much. Uh, We're only here for 
one more week, and then we're traveling to other states, and then eventually go back to Thailand uh, in January. So thank you very much, and may God bless you. At this time, I'd like to invite the ushers forward to assist us with the giving of our tithes and offerings. for a number of years that as we pray together to open the altar rail as a place where you may want to offer your prayers. If you desire to do so, please come and join me.
And Father, we come this morning asking that you would open our eyes. Open our eyes to who you are, to who we are, to who you want us to be. We pray that you will help us to be willing to admit the truth about ourselves, that we need you. We so often fall short of your glory. This morning we come and acknowledge this truth. And even as we do, we acknowledge your offers of grace and forgiveness. And we ask that you would open our eyes to this truth as well. Open our eyes to the needs of the world, to the needs of our lives, to the needs of people right around us, as well as people in places of the world we may never go or see. Father, we do pray this morning that you will meet the needs of our lives and those we represent. We pray for your your comforting grace on all who are grieving today, and we think especially of the family of Doris Wells. We pray that they will know your mercy and your grace and comfort and peace in their lives. We pray for all who are struggling with issues of health. We pray for Bruce Brenneman and Bill Roski, for Matt Bissett and Bev Rett and Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth and Alton Shea, for Isla Shea and Dick Gould, and for Edna Howard and Crystal Blake and Emily Crickler, and others who are in need among us. Father, we pray for your grace on others who are in need for other reasons. Relationships that have broken down, struggling to to know how to step into the future, wrestling with just living every day and going to work and facing the difficulties about it. In all of our lives, we ask for your grace and that you would open our eyes to your mercies. Father, we pray for our world. Thank you for Steve and Margie for the ministry that uh, they have had in their, in their lives. Thank you for the ways that you have used them and are continuing to use them. And we pray your anointed blessing upon them and those with whom they work, that more and more people would have the gospel available to them and would come to faith in you. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling with the Ebola virus and ask that you would bring healing and an end to this crisis. We pray that you'd comfort families that are grieving. We pray that you would help people who live in fear and anxiety and all in the medical profession who are helping. Lord, reveal yourself in healing grace. We pray for the violence of our world and ask that you would bring peace in the midst of it. And of course, we're focused especially on the Middle East, but all over the world, violence is so prevalent. We pray that your church would be a presence of peace and love and compassion in the midst of war 
and violence and hate. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world and those who face severe persecution. We think this morning of this young boy, McCall, and his family in Pakistan. His family that's had to flee their home simply because they are Christians. We pray for them and for our brothers and sisters in Pakistan. Give them courage. Help them to know that you are with them. Protect them. Help them to be light in the midst of darkness and hope in the midst of despair. And Father, let their witness in such trying circumstances be a witness to us as well that we might live with the courage of your spirit wherever we find ourselves. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers today. We offer them in the strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we pray together now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The scripture this morning comes from um, the book of Revelations, chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, and chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully, dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cause from the spring of water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderous, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is a second death. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. 
On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb, of, Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will, there will not need the light of, of a lamb or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The word of the Lord. I want to invite you to stand and take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here. Perhaps introduce yourself to someone that you don't know. Last spring, after I asked you, what would you like to hear a sermon about? What kind of questions do you have? And I started getting responses in. All of the questions frightened me just a little bit, to be honest with you. Um, Some of them frightened me because they were very controversial. And we've done a little bit of that. We'll be getting to more of that in the next few weeks. But uh, some of them frightened me because, quite frankly, part of me wants to say, I don't really know. And... um, if you haven't had a chance to look at the questions, we've got some bookmarks in the back and they have the, the, quest, the sermons that we're going to be talking about. But this is one of those, one of those questions today that quite frankly is, is dealing with the great unknown. What is heaven like? I haven't been there. I don't know. Now, you know, we, there are a few people in the world, a small minority, the polls seem to show us, tell us that don't believe in heaven. But the majority of people believe in at least some type of life after death. For some people, it's reincarnation. For other people, it takes on a variety of dimensions. But in the Christian faith, one of the, one of the central elements of, of who we are as Christians and what we believe is heaven. And I've been asking myself, why do we believe in heaven? What, what is it that, that causes us to say, I believe that there is a place called heaven? I think one of the reasons, or at least one of the things that, that reinforces our view of heaven are the stories that we hear from people uh, who have had some kind of an experience. How many of you have, have read the book Heaven's For Real or maybe you saw the movie? Okay, not quite as many as first service. But uh, almost everybody in the first service had seen it or read it. It's a little story. Actually, it's a Wesleyan pastor who wrote this book about it in this little boy's experience of in essence, being dead, having this experience of seeing people in some kind of setting and then coming back to life and telling them about it. And, um, you know, sometimes you read the stories of people who had these experiences and you kind of scratch your head and say, eh, 
there doesn't seem to be any agenda behind this other than the little boy gradually saying, hey, dad, mom, this is what I saw. It's a fascinating account. And there are others like it, and it causes us to say there's something going on there after we die. And maybe that's not exactly the scenario that is going to happen, but something about it. I think in a deeper way, though, we believe in heaven because there is a yearning in us. We're created for something more. We think about this world. We think God created us with such intricacy. He created us with such beauty. Surely, just living maybe 70 years, as Scripture says, on earth, surely that's not enough. There's more. God created us to, be, to live eternally. And we have a, a yearning within our spirits that sometimes we can't quite put our hands or get our hands around, our minds around, but we know it's something more. We believe that, that what happens on the earth, there's so much that's incomplete and so much that, that we think of injustice and issues and problems that we don't see resolved. And there's something in us that says, surely the God who claims to be good is going to resolve it. And we see that happening in the world to come. Lewis, you know, says, if, if I find that I have experiences, yearnings in my heart that experiences in this life can't explain, probably the most accurate and most, prob- most clear explanation is that I was made for another world. And that yearning is within all of us that surely there's more than this, just this. But ultimately, the reason we believe in heaven is because Jesus says so. I mean, over and over again, the scriptures tell us there is more. And when we get to John 14, Jesus meeting with his disciples says to them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back so I can take you to be where I am. Trust me. And from that moment, Christians have been trusting him. That this world is not the end. There is more. We believe that there is more. Now, there are a lot of different ideas about what that more is, what it looks like, what it's going to be. I think in some sense, there is, the more is about our sacrifice, about about the reward that we get for the sacrifices that we make in this world, the sacrifices we make for Christ. In, in everybody's mindset, there is something about that related to heaven, that we're going to be rewarded. You get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his disciples, blessed are you when people persecute you and insult you, speak all manner of evil against you, for great is your reward in heaven. It is true. The day is coming when we will be rewarded for the sacrifices we've made for being followers of Jesus. And sometimes that feels a little bit mercenary. You know, it feels like, well, I probably shouldn't follow Jesus just so I get rewarded. And yet it's a promise of God. And it's not really mercenary because it's not as though we're doing this like we do a job so we can get paid. Quite frankly, there are days in all of our jobs that we go to work simply because we know if we don't, we aren't going to get paid. 
And so we, we go to work and we get, because we're going to be paid. Heaven's not like that. It's not like, well, we're going to believe in heaven. And I'm, going to, I'm going to sacrifice for Jesus so that I will get paid. It's more like, says N.T. Wright, the investment we make in a relationship. In a marriage or a friendship. That, that we invest ourselves in it. We sacrifice. We give of ourselves. We, we, we give of our time and our energy and, and, and all about ourselves. So that we can have a deeper relationship with this person. Because we want this relationship to be the very best it could possibly be. And we want to engage it in the very best possible way. He said it's, it's like going out and you practice playing golf. So that when you get out on the tee, you can hit the ball relatively straight. Or you learn Greek. So that when you go, so you can go back and you can read the ancient poets... In their own language and catch all the nuances of what they've written. Because you want to engage with them. It's not as though it's a bribe. That we sometimes think. It's simply a reward for being followers of Jesus. But even in that context... As we think about what does that even mean and what does heaven look like and, and, and what is it going to be? If heaven is real and it's this place, what's it going to be like? And most of the time we have this mindset that it's going to be clouds and angels and wings and things like that, right? I mean, that's how most of us view it. And quite frankly, it doesn't seem all that exciting. You know, I've told you this before. When I was in junior high, I remember our youth pastor, some funny how you remember some things, but I remember our youth pastor saying to us, well, what would be, what do you think heaven would be like? What do you think it should be like? And all I could think of was heaven would be an unending baseball game. I couldn't think of anything better than that. I was reading about, I, I can relate to a pastor who, or a guy who was overhearing a conversation a pastor had with the parishioner. And he was, the parishioner was saying, tell me what is heaven like? And the pastor was trying to describe it and, you know, was finding it difficult. And he said, well... It's going to be better than you can imagine. It's going to be like an unending church service. And the guy said, you know, as I thought about that, I'm not sure that's exactly the picture of heaven I have. I have a different picture of that being another place that we talk about. I I kind of get that. And it's because we have this sense of heaven being sort of this in the sky, floating on clouds. When we read, but when we read about heaven, there is a concreteness to it. Even back in Isaiah, the prophet talks about a new heaven and a new earth that God is creating. We get to Revelation 21 and he talks about, John says, I looked and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And it is new, not in the sense of we're going to trash everything that's done before, And we say, whoa, I've never seen anything like that before. But new in the sense of restored, redeemed, brought to life. That's the kind of new we're talking about. I am convinced that heaven will have a concrete nature to it. That the new heaven, the new earth, where we will exist eternally, will be a place where we, we work and we, and we engage with one another. And you wonder, well, what are we going to do there? Well, some people have this image of heaven in this cartoon that I, that I found. I don't think it's going to be exactly like that. 
I think sometimes we have this mindset that we're, it's like we're sitting in a, a deck chair out on the beach of some tropical island, sipping drinks out of a half, you know, a shelled out coconut or something. You know, that we just sit back, people are waiting on us and, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. In heaven, we will work, we will create, because that's what God does. God is a creator. God doesn't create because it seemed like a good idea. He creates because he loves to create, as we talked last week. He finds joy in creating. It's who he is. It's part of his nature. And that part of his nature has been embedded in us who are made in his image. Work isn't a part of the curse, Adam and Eve were working before the curse came. They were tilling the soil. They were planting and reaping. The difference is, after the curse, now it became really difficult. And when we work in heaven, it will be different in the sense that we won't see work as the means of gaining value and worth like we do now. And why are we workaholics? Because deep underlying somewhere in there is one of two things. Either we want to make more money. It's about getting, getting, getting. Or we want people to think we're pretty special. Look what they can do. Look how much they can accomplish. Look how successful they are. It's the human need, the drive within us to want people to look at us and say they have worth and value. And the only way we can think of doing that is to work. And so our work becomes what gives us value in heaven. It will not be that way at all. We will work because our work will glorify God. Because our work will bring joy to us. Our work will help each other. It will be a part of building relationships. And we will create. Because one of the most wonderful things in our lives now is creating something and looking back and saying, wow, that's great. And we'll experience that joy of creating and working and loving and sharing that comes from being in the new heaven and the new earth. And we won't, work won't exhaust us like it does now because we will practice Sabbath like we're supposed to. We will practice Sabbath like God designed it and that Sabbath will restore us like we are supposed to get restored now if we just practice Sabbath. The writer of Hebrews talks about the Sabbath rest that is ours. And that doesn't mean, he's not talking about we're just going to sleep all the time. He's talking about the Sabbath rest that comes from stopping our labors and worshiping. And all that we do will be a means of worshiping God. And I think not only will our activities be similar and dissimilar, I think our bodies will be that as well. I suspect, I'm just guessing, but I suspect that maybe our bodies in heaven will be like the resurrected body of Jesus. Remember in John 10 or 20, he appears to his disciples after the resurrection and they recognize him. And in fact, they see the nail prints in his hands and his side. And he even says to Thomas, here, touch me. Feel them. And yet he entered the room by walking through the door. He didn't open and shut it. He just walked through a closed door. Something different. 
And he could move from one place to another in a millisecond. So while it was similar, it was also different. And I suspect there might be something like that for us. You know, one of the questions that was asked that I got to admit was, was very moving to me. And even as I think about it, 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 it stirs me. It was one of our children asked the question. I don't, you know, we didn't have names on most of them, but I suspect I know where it came from. But one of the questions that was asked was about uh, Clayton Templeton, who has Down syndrome. And the question was, what will Clayton be like in heaven? And I don't know the answer to that question except that I am convinced that Clayton, I don't know exactly what his body will look like, but I do believe that all the barriers that now limit him will be removed. I believe that he will have perfect speech. And he'll be able to, to, have, to think perfectly and process things perfectly that now there are limitations. And I believe all of the barriers that you and I face will be removed. Some of those barriers are physical, aches and pains and, and struggles. And some of them are mental and we forget and we aren't able to concentrate and we aren't able to process things And some of them will be emotional because we've been hurt so deeply by people and circumstances in this life that we just can't get over them. And they will be healed. They'll be removed. John says in chapter 21 of Revelation, in heaven there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. We'll be healed. And I'm convinced that heaven will be that way for us. Because heaven will be a place of ultimate joy. There will be nothing in heaven where we say, I wish that were different. Like we do now. Heaven will be the one place where we will be able to think about our lives and say, how could anything be better? How could we want for anything that's different? One of the ways in which heaven is described in the scriptures is the great wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19. And weddings are often talked about in the scriptures as as a symbol of God's people coming together. And there will be this ultimate wedding feast in heaven. What's more joyous and celebratory than a wedding? Now, granted, sometimes in our evangelical traditions, we have, I'm going to make up a word, we've somberized weddings. I don't think that's a real word, but I'll make it up. You know what I mean. You know, we've, we've made weddings so serious that they're somber. And they are serious. And life is serious. And being followers of Jesus is serious. And I'm convinced Jesus was serious about his mission on earth. But Jesus was the most joyous person who ever lived. Why else would children flock to him? And people surround him. And push and shove to get to him. It's full of joy, and that joy will inhabit heaven. 
And that joy will not just be because we all think the same and we all look the same and we all are the same. I'm fascinated, and I have been for a long time, but I've been fascinated by Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where John says, I looked and before me, I saw this multitude of people. There were so many you couldn't count them. And there in that multitude were people from every tribe, nation, people, and language. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn talks about this passage and says, he is convinced that there will be nationalities in heaven. And we'll be able to see the difference. John was. So that when we get to heaven, there will be Nigerians in heaven. There will be Chinese in heaven. There will be Guatemalans in heaven. There will be Vietnamese in heaven. There will be Italians in heaven. There will be Koreans in heaven. There will be Australians in heaven. There will be Mexicans in heaven. There will be Colombians in heaven. There will be Canadians in heaven. There will be a few Americans in heaven, we hope. Probably not as many as we might think. but And we'll be able to see that. And the difference is now our nationalities divide us. While we live on this earth, our nationalities are one of the ways in which we think about us and them. And our nationalities lead to war. Our nationalities lead us to take advantage of people so that we can get what we want. Or so we can feel more secure about ourselves or have more money in our pockets. Our nationalities lead now to things like slavery and bondage and vulnerable people. But in heaven, our nationalities won't divide us, they'll unite us. We will be this place in which all of us, even with our differences, will get together because our focus will be Jesus. And the, and our, our, the principle will not be that we bring all of our differences and they sort of meld together into one, but our differences will just help us learn from each other. New ways to worship, new ways to see God, new ways to, to engage one another in love and compassion and grace. You think about a wedding. And, and a wedding really is taking two families that are often very different and bringing them together to form a new family. I've talked with enough couples preparing to get married that there are often very big differences between them. And each couple, each person in the couple comes with what they consider normal. It may not be normal at all, but it's normal to them. One of the examples I use is opening Christmas presents. In some families, people sit around the, the room where the tree and the presents are. You take one present out, you hand it to a person, they open it up. And, and they look at it, everyone oohs and ahs, and maybe they try on the sweater, or you look at the ring, or they play with the toy. And maybe five minutes go by, maybe longer sometimes, then you move to the next person, they open their gift, and you know, they take that time, and you go to the next person. And it, take, you know, it takes you a long time to go through the things if you have a very big family. Other families, they get everybody in the circle, they lay your pile of gifts in front of you, and they say, go. And paper and ribbons and bows just flying everywhere. And when everything's opened, people go, ooh, what'd you get? What'd you get? Let's see, you know. 
And I've had so many couples come together and I say to them, what's normal Christmas? And one will say this and the other will say this. And they look at each other and say, what, what? That's not normal. Well, it is to me. And it's a lot of fun to bring two normals together to form another. Sometimes it's a struggle, but it's also fun. And I think it will be something like that in heaven. Where we will, we will unite our normals into one new. And it will not divide us. It will be glorious. And maybe that's one of the reasons why scripture admonishes us so often about the, the need for unity. Because what we're doing now is simply preparing us for what we're going to do then. There's that joy and that variety that leads us to this place of celebrating who God is. And one of the great questions about all of this is who gets into heaven and who doesn't. Next week we're going to talk a bit about who doesn't. But when we ask that question, in fact, even asking the question that way implies that there is some formula to get into heaven. And we love formulas, right? Because if you have a formula, then you don't have to think. You just say, you plug in the formula, yeah, no, and you go that way, you go that way. I read about a guy who was talking about heaven, and he said... One of the things, the great things about thing about heaven is that when you get there, everyone will have will be there because they have understood and figured out God's entrance requirements. And I read that and I thought, what does that even mean? Entrance requirements. The, those people have the secret code. They know the secret handshake. They're able to punch in the right buttons on the keypad. What it usually means is. You've said the words or you've prayed the prayer. And as long as you've done those things, you're in. Doesn't matter how you live, you're in. And praying a prayer is important. Repenting of our sin, coming before God in humility is vital. But that's not the secret that unlocks the door. Because as Dennis Kinlaw says, Jesus really doesn't say that much to his disciples about believing in him. What he says over and over again is, follow me. Follow me. It's not about saying words, it's about living a life. Heaven's not some kind of eternal fire insurance that we make sure we have on the back burner when we need it. Heaven is about this, the fulfillment of living a life that's focused on Christ. That God's desires are our desires. God's passions are our passions. God's dreams are our dreams. The way God looks at the world is the way we want to look at the world. Because when we get to heaven, it will be a place reserved for people who want what God wants. And the formula causes us to say, how little can I do? How little can I think about God and still get in? Instead of how much can I embrace God and surrender to God and live a life following Christ until I experience the reality of heaven. 
And that means that those who are followers of Jesus are agents of the, in this world for the kingdom of God. Our calling is to do what we prayed a few moments ago. And because of our lives, we are working to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. N.T. Wright says we do that, maybe summarizing it, we do it in three ways. We care about beauty. We care about creation. Because again, God is going to restore what he has created. He's not just going to destroy it. And so we have a responsibility to take care of God's creation. To obey the command given to Adam and Eve in Genesis. To steward God's creation. Both the creation of the world and the creation of human beings. We care about justice. We care about what happens to the vulnerable and the innocent. We are a voice for the voiceless. We are a presence for people who have no ability to be present. We stand up for injustice. We do what God commanded his, the Israelites for centuries. That they were responsible for the aliens and the strangers and the widows and the orphans and the poor among them. And he says to them over and over again... If you don't take care of them, you're going to have to answer to me. Jesus says in Matthew 25, you're going to separate the sheep and the goats eternally. How do we know who's which? By how you treated the hungry, the poor, the thirsty, the naked, the people in prison. Because we're simply living the heart of God. It's not a formula. It's simply saying, I want to treat people the way God does. And God is compassionate toward people. Forgiving, loving, caring. And we care about evangelism. Sometimes when we think about evangelism, it's about we want to get people into heaven. And we certainly want to do that. But... What we really want is for people now to experience the joy and the peace and the freedom of Christ as we live now. Our motivation for taking the the gospel into the world is not just to get people to heaven, but it's to set them free through the spirit and through, through the grace of Christ from the bondage that enslaves people now. So we don't have to live in fear. We can live in in Peace. We don't have to live in despair. We have hope. We have joy. We can know the grace of God in our lives now. And the role of evangelism is to tell people that. And to be through words and life a witness to that. So that people know that God loves them and cares for them. And wants to transform their lives as he's transformed ours. We are mirrors. Of who God is. You see ultimately. Heaven is about God. It is only heaven. Because God is there. It is heaven. Because we are going to experience. The fullness of God. All the barriers. That now exist between us and God. Because of the fallen world. In which we live. Our sinfulness. Our struggles. Our humanness. All of that is going to be removed and we are going to experience the fullness of who God is in his love and compassion and truth and grace and mercy. We will know him through the power of the risen Christ.
That's our hope. That's why it's a place of joy, because it's God's place. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ who has risen from the dead and has promised us that this world is not the end. That death is not the end. But he has promised us life eternal. So my question for us this morning is, do we have that hope? Are we living with the hope of Christ? That our lives are focused on him. We have not just about saying words or praying a prayer, as important as that can be, but it's really about wanting what God wants. That's what our life is. And that because of what Christ has done for us, we are doing everything in our power to help other people experience that grace in their lives. It is the joy and the hope and the grace and the love of God promised to us. Now we simply embrace it and let him fill us with the fullness of all that he's promised. Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace in our lives. Pour out your spirit on each of us. Help us to see you at work in us. Help us to open our hearts more and more to all that you desire for us and for others. We pray this through Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing together. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? To my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only I can only imagine when that day comes and we find ourselves standing in the sun. I can only imagine when all we will do is forever, forever worship you. I can only imagine. I can only. Imagine.
Knowing the promise and the hope that is ours, may you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with you now and forevermore. Amen.